a good morning. It's a good time to be in the house of the Lord together. And I'm going to invite you to turn now to Mark chapter 14 as we continue our study of this great gospel. Mark chapter 14, and we're going to look at verses 26 through 31, as well as verses 66 to 72. But we'll start with 26 through 31 of Mark chapter 14. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And Jesus said to them, You will all fall away. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you into Galilee. Peter said to him, even though they all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, truly, I tell you, this very night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he said emphatically, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. Now, verse 66. And as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came, and seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, You also were with the Nazarene, Jesus. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. And he went out into the gateway, and the rooster crowed. And the servant girl saw him and began again to say to the bystanders, This man is one of them. But again he denied it. And after a little while, the bystanders again said to Peter, Certainly you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. But he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. And immediately the rooster crowed a second time. And Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, Before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and wept. Father, I do not know how to explain in words that are necessary the meaning in the depth of what is conveyed here in this example of Peter. But Father, I pray that you will open our hearts and that you will help us to hear from you, to receive from you the word that we need today. Lord, help me explain as best I can. And Lord, I thank you for the strength that you give. In Jesus' name, amen. Falling away from Jesus. Falling away from Jesus. That's what Jesus says Peter is going to do here. And Peter is one of those larger-than-life figures. He has his dramatic highs and his incredible lows. 
And we've been following his life now through the Gospel of Mark. You've seen it. This call from the fishing boat three years earlier, he was out casting his nets, doing the work that he had thought he would spend his life doing. And Jesus says, Peter, come and follow me. And he leaves his nets behind and he, he goes and he follows this, this new rabbi, this teacher who shows up. Later on in the story, and, and, and Mark doesn't tell us all the details. We've got to put some of this together from other gospels. But, but there's a storm on the Sea of Galilee. And Peter knows how dangerous these storms are. And yet he steps out of the boat, doesn't he? And he walks on the water with Jesus. What an experience. Who can claim to have walked on water with Jesus? And then, that day when he just said to, Jesus said to them, Peter, James, and John, I need you to come with me. I've got something really special that I want, want you to be a part of. Just you three, come on, up this mountain. And at the top of that mountain, what happens? The, the, the transfiguration, Jesus is, is, is like transformed into this bright, resurrected, glorified Savior, Messiah, Lord, and, and, and Moses and Elijah are there with him. And Peter sees all this. Who could ever have uh, thought to be a part of something like that? What a life Peter has lived in just these few years with Jesus. And then when this time comes for the meal, this Last Supper, Jesus says that, uh, you know, one of you has betrayed me. Mm. Peter says, no, I'm going to be with you forever. Even if they all fall away, I will still be by your side. And what happens? Well, we skipped some of this. We'll come back to it in weeks ahead. But the disciples and Jesus go out into the garden. And of course, Jesus is betrayed here by Judas. And when the soldiers come to arrest him, what does Peter do? Peter draws the sword and he chops off the ear of one of the soldiers. He's ready to fight to the death. There's no question in his mind. He's, he's following through on what he said, isn't he? And what does Jesus do? Jesus says, I don't want an armed revolt. He puts the soldier's ear back on his head and lets them lead him away, arrested. And I'm sure Peter watched this. And he saw the other disciples scatter into the shadows. And he starts to wonder. He sees Jesus arrested. He sees Jesus mocked. He sees Jesus beaten, almost senseless. And he's starting to think, has Jesus failed? Is Jesus not who he claimed to be? And so when he's questioned on that night, there in verses 66 through 71, he's, real, he's thinking, 
that perhaps Jesus has failed. He, he, he refuses now to declare his loyalty to him, and he even lies about having known Jesus. And that's when the rooster crows the second time. Hearing that rooster, that's the sign. That's the signal, the message that suddenly strikes Peter, the very core of his being. He remembers what Jesus had said. Jesus had said, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And Peter realizes, well, I just did that. I just denied him three times. The rooster crowed twice. Jesus predicted exactly what would happen. And and Peter starts to connect some dots here. He realizes maybe Jesus is who he said he was. Maybe he does know what's happening. Maybe I'm the one missing something here. Maybe Jesus hasn't failed. Maybe I have failed. Peter has fallen away just as Jesus said he would. And I want to ask the question now, what happens when we fall away from Jesus? What happens when we fall away from Jesus? And either maybe in dramatic fashion, maybe just a blatant, outright, Peter-style denial, or perhaps that slow drift, that growing cooler and cooler to the things of God. And then finally finding yourself realizing, uh, where am I? What is this faith that I thought I had? Because there are times when we have that mountaintop experience of grace. And a lot of you have probably been there. And if you haven't been, I hope you are there someday. That time when God's grace is so evident, there is no question in your mind that his promises are real, that he has saved you from sin and death, that he has called you to a new life, and your vision of what you need to do is clear. It is not something you're doubting. It's not something you're, you're still unsure of or hesitant about. You realize where you need to go, and you have determined to live for God. Your faith feels rather unshakable in those moments, and you are just spiritually courageous. You are spiritually confident. Maybe you were baptized. Maybe you came forward at some point after a, a message, and, and you just were gripped by the grace of God. These are those times of mountaintop grace experiences. And and then there are those valleys of God's grace. And we all experience them. God's grace gets harder to see. Our vision gets more limited or feels even cut off, perhaps. And that determination that once was there, that once was so strong and so obvious, seems to to just get weaker and, and weaker. And we notice something. We notice other Christians maybe aren't as 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 strong as we thought they were either. You notice the failure of of those around you, people maybe you trusted and you you look at them and you say, "Eh, was it so real after all? 
I got to tell you, this is a hard one for me sometimes. We, we put a lot of confidence in big name evangelical leaders who, who write books and give sermons that impress us. And we say, wow, the spirit of God's at work in them. And then he finds them some scandal. Something that just plagued their life. And you realize, what's going on here? How disheartening. How discouraging. And as Peter was, was standing there with the rest of the disciples, and you know, it wasn't just Peter who said, I won't leave you. They all said, we won't leave you. But Peter's watching them all just scurry like cockroaches into the shadows. And he's thinking, oh boy, what have I gotten myself into? And so often it's, it's, it's a gradual descent into this valley. Sometimes you just fall right off the cliff. Maybe you stumble into some kind of a, a real bad temptation or you just have something really horrible happen in your life and that suffering and that discombobulation just throws you off and you're like, boy, what's, what's going on here? And in this valley, in the valley of grace, the tempter speaks. And this is what the tempter says. The tempter says, the problem isn't you. The tempter says, the problem is with God. That maybe his grace isn't all that life-changing after all. Maybe you overcommitted yourself at first. Maybe you were just a little too excited. And it's time to cool off. Maybe it's time to, to get realistic again. And that curtain of spiritual discouragement descends. And it gets darker and darker in your heart. I think this experience is common among Christians, but we are afraid to talk about it. I think we are afraid to talk about it because we know it, it's, it's a problem, but we also don't want to talk about it because we don't want to discourage other people. We want to keep up appearances, so we might start to go through certain routines and keep up certain uh, uh, patterns that make it look like we're still on track. But down inside, there is a darkening of our hearts. And we start to accept this as just normal spiritual conditions. Because the tempter is speaking into our hearts saying, this is the way it's really going to be. Just accept it. God's not all you thought. This life that he's called you to isn't what you think it is. But what we need in that valley is for the word of God and for the spirit of God to testify to our spirit that what God has called us to and what he has blessed us with is real. And it's so much more even than what we thought at first. That's what we need to see. But how do we get there? Well, let's look at Peter's life again. Back to his example. And it starts with that rooster crow, doesn't it? The sound of that yard bird that wakes you up in the morning. And we don't necessarily hear roosters, most of us, that often in, in our neighborhoods. Maybe you live out in the country. Maybe you have a farm. Maybe you've got some chickens and you hear those roosters in the morning. I, I remember going to you know, the Dominican Republic or, or Mexico or places in Africa. Even in the cities, you've got roosters that crow. 
in the morning and wake you up at the crack of dawn. We, but, but think about this rooster, the most important rooster, perhaps, in the history of the world. This rooster crow that marks the low point in Peter's life, the low point when he breaks. It says there uh, in verse 72, he, he broke down and he wept. It marks the low point. But you know, the lowest point is also the turning point. You know, that's true for us in our lives. The low point is the turning point. And in Peter's life, it was certainly a turning point when he recognized Jesus again. He remembered what Jesus had predicted. He realized Jesus is true. He realized Jesus knows more than he was thinking he knew. And he was right. And his heart is broken, but it's broken in the right way. Now, Mark doesn't tell us this, but John does. After Jesus has, has died and risen again, he meets with Peter. Jesus meets with Peter there by the Sea of Galilee. And, and, and in three times, Jesus asks him, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? And three times, Peter says, I love you. I love you. I love you. And what does Jesus do? Jesus says, then feed my sheep. Take back that call of leadership that I had designated for you. And he restores him amazingly and miraculously to that important role. He affirms him in what he wants him to do and to be. What an amazing evidence of grace, isn't it? I mean, he's denied Jesus blatantly three times. And yet Jesus says, shepherd my people. I want you to be the one to lead when I am no longer here. And then Acts chapter 2, Pentecost. Peter is leading the disciples at this point as they are gathered in the upper room and, 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 and the Holy Spirit is poured out in that moment. And, and Peter is the one who gets the opportunity to preach. Peter's the one called to give the sermon that day when the church is born and the Holy Spirit is unleashed. What a sign of God's redemptive grace. And then the power that God works through the life of Peter is, is on display throughout the book of Acts and the miracles and the, 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 the change in the lives of thousands of people who come to faith because of Peter's work. And eventually, Peter, uh, we, we know from tradition, ends up in Rome. And while he's in Rome, he meets Mark. And there, in meeting with Mark, he begins to tell Mark his story. Mark records that story, and that's what we have here in the gospel. It's, it's understood that Peter is the primary source behind Mark's gospel. It's amazing to think that Peter was so open about his failure in recounting to Mark what happened on that night. But he knows he can say this and tell this story and share his testimony because Jesus Christ has changed him forever. The Holy Spirit has changed him forever. And there's something else to note about what must have been going on in the background. And I can't say any of this with certainty, but we also uh, believe that, that Paul ends up in Rome towards the end of his life. And so I'm just picturing this scene. Peter, Paul. Mark, together in Rome, 
reminiscing about years gone by and all the, the work that they've shared together in ministry. And Mark is one of these unique characters in the New Testament who spent a lot of time with both Paul and with Peter. And he's gathering this, all this, this wisdom from these leaders. And Peter's certainly aware of Paul's teaching and what Paul has, has spoken, especially to the people there in Rome. And I want you to turn now to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, one of the greatest chapters in all of Scripture. And I, I have to believe that late in his life, Peter is reading Romans chapter 8. And I'm thinking of Peter reading this saying, wow, that just sums up exactly what God did in my life. Romans chapter 8, and the whole chapter is uh, incredible, but I'm going to just read verses 1 through 9. And, and think about Peter, late in life hearing these words from Paul or reading them on his own. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the spirit set their minds on the things of the spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death. But to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if in fact the spirit of God dwells in you. If you know much about the book of Romans, you'll know in chapter 7, Paul describes this experience of, of struggle, saying, I do what I don't want to do. I don't do what I want to do. <clears throat> There's this sense of spiritual defeat describing Peter's life before the Holy Spirit is poured out upon him. But now Peter gets it. The answer is the indwelling spirit of God. Peter didn't have that, did he? At the time of his denials, at the time of his depths of despair and, and realizing what had happened, he, he realizes he did not have the Spirit of God in him. His mind was on the flesh. And Paul says, for, to set the mind on the flesh is death. The mind set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot Peter was incapable at that point in his life of doing what he should do when he denied Jesus. But the Spirit of God changes everything. And so his mind now is, is set on the Spirit. With the Spirit, he is made new. 
And, and, and does, does Peter become perfect? Well, no, not really. Does he become transformed? Absolutely. Does he become consistent? Incredibly so, compared especially to where he had been. Is he used by God? Absolutely, without question. And the change is because of the Spirit of God at work in his life. So what about us? If we once stood on that mountaintop of grace and knew what it meant to, 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 to feel God's forgiveness and new life and to be compelled in a new way, then, then you've been awakened in, in your heart by the Spirit of God and, and you've realized you've been forgiven and this is a special gift and this is a tremendous blessing and you've had a foretaste of the joy that is to come and you've been launched into a life of worship and of service and this work, though, that you experienced, it's the beginning. It's the start. And then we read about Romans chapter 8, verses 1 and 2. No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. This is you because of what you have received by God's free gift. He says, set free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. This is you because of the finished work of Christ on the cross. But you know what? You couldn't remain on the mountaintop forever. The feelings are going to come and they're going to go. But we are pulled by life back into the valley, back into the shadows, back into the struggles, back into the temptations. And while the truth of God's grace remains, our ability to see it and to embrace it becomes more and more challenged by daily life, doesn't it? And that voice of that tempter comes and seeks to draw us away. That voice of the tempter seeks to instill in us the doubt that maybe God's grace isn't what we thought. So what do we need? We need to remember that God is real. We need to remember that his grace is sufficient. We need to remember that what Paul describes for us here in Romans 8 is for us. And that it is a moment-by-moment mindset in the Spirit of God that he has promised Within us. Look at verses 5 and 6 of Romans 8 one more time. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit, he says, set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. I think I counted five times in these just few verses, Paul says, set your mind, set your mind. Set your mind on the things of the Spirit, not on the things of the flesh. What does that mean? I think to sum it up as simply as I can, to set our minds on the Spirit is to live in the moment-by-moment reality of the Holy Spirit dwelling in you. To set our minds on the Spirit is to live in the moment-by-moment reality of the Holy Spirit dwelling in you. In other words, when you are saved, you receive the grace of God. You are awakened by the Spirit. You are forgiven. And there is a miraculous thing that happens in your heart. But then by setting our minds in the Spirit, we live in the moment-by-moment reality of that. So now, Peter really knew the truth of Jesus. 
He had walked on the water with Jesus. He had stood on the Mount of Transfiguration with Jesus. He had fought with the sword to defend Jesus. In the time of testing, though, he did not yet have the Spirit dwelling in him. He couldn't set his mind on the things of the Spirit. And it was the rooster crow, in some ways, that was the Spirit of God in his life, wasn't it? That wakened him up and said, Jesus is real. Jesus is true. And what his promises are, are for you. So now for us, when we go through that valley and we feel like we are in danger of falling away, we've got to remember the simple truth of Romans 8. That the grace that God saves us with is the grace that he sustains us with. And it goes with us moment by moment as we set our minds on the Spirit of God. And how do you do that? How do you do that? What's the practical application here for us? Well, we just hold fast to that grace. We keep our minds set on the Spirit of God, and we cut out the things that would distract us from that, that would pull us from that truth. You know, it's part discipline, it's part habit, part help from those around us, but it's all God's grace that needs to be constantly pouring into our lives. So how do we walk that out? Well, it's not some brand new idea that none of you have ever heard before. It's, it's scripture. It's living in scripture. It's, it's prayer. It's, it's taking time to, to pray with God, and to, to worship God together. I can assure you that if you stop coming to church, if you stop reading your Bible, if you stop praying, you will find yourself in the valley and the tempter will have you in no time. It's the fellowship. It's being together with other people who believe what you believe and who affirm in your heart what you knew to be true and to, to be continually setting our minds on the things of the Spirit. It's a simple life walked out faithfully moment by moment by moment. But we live in a world full of distractions, full of everything imaginable to pull us from that moment by moment mindset on the Spirit of God. So there's other simple things that often, I think, cause people to fall. Things like exercise and, and healthy diet can even be a major factor in our spiritual lives. Things like uh, the, the entertainment or the way we just spend our downtime. I took my phone this week, I figured it out, I looked it up online, and I figured out how to turn a smartphone into a dumb phone. And what a gift it has been to me already. And, and, and you know, I'm, I'm no longer just like, oh, I've got three or 30 seconds, I'm going to see what latest news articles are here. I mean, I was going through my news feed and I saw something about some 15-year-old kid who, who lived off nothing but breakfast sausage his whole life and how they healed him through hypnosis or whatever. I'm like, why do I need to read this? <laughs> But isn't that what we spend so much of our time with? And, and you say, well, it's no big deal. It's not bad. It's not sinful. But it's a distraction. Is my mind set on the things of the Spirit? Or is my mind just set on the things of the flesh and the things of whatever? There's just a thousand distractions, aren't there? And if we can just start to walk more and more with a mind set on the Spirit of God and all that that means, I believe we will start to walk more and more in the victory and the promise and the joy of God's grace that, that Peter discovered once he realized that the Spirit of God is active and powerful and encouraging. Heavenly Father, help us 
Help us through the valleys and through the flat places and through the the darkest of times to know that your grace is, is there and is real and that when we put our minds in the spirit, you go with us. You are there and you will help us. And Lord, free us from the things that, um, that pull us away from you. The tempter is hard at work trying to trip us up in every way possible. But Lord, we want to renew again our walk with you. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. As we sing this song,